So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you right now to open our hearts um, as we dive deeper into your word yet again. And we ask you to speak uh, the words that you want us all to hear today. Anything that is of my own or anything that is of my own opinion, take it away and mute it and have your word be resounding and moving in our hearts with the Holy Spirit work within us. We pray now because we know that this world needs a chain breaker. We know that there is sickness. There are people with heavy weights and we know that your son has come and given us a way out of this. So we pray for hope. We pray for this time of fellowship together. We thank you for all that you always do for us. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So during a war between Britain and France, men were enlisted into the French army by a kind of lottery system. When someone's name was drawn, he had to go off to battle. On one occasion, the authorities came to a certain man and told him that he was among those who was chosen. He refused to go, saying, I was shot and killed two years ago. At first, the officials questioned his sanity, but, ins but he insisted that this was indeed the case. He claimed the military records would show that he had been killed in action. How can that be? They questioned. You are alive now. He explained that when his name first came up, a close friend said to him, you have a large family, but I am not married, and nobody is dependent upon me. I will take your name and address and go in your place. And that is indeed what the record showed. This rather unusual case was referred to Napoleon Bonaparte, who decided that the country had no legal claim on him. He was free. He had died in the person of another. And as incredible as this story is, the story of the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is so much more powerful. Today, I want to focus on the cost of that freedom. And what I want to focus on is the title of this message, which is The Cup, The Curse, and The Crush. So let's look at our main passage that I want to focus on, which is Galatians 3.13, which reads, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. So to understand this passage, we need to look at some of this terminology that is used um, in the scriptures and the first point, which is the cup. Also referred to as the cup of wrath. Represented in the Old and New Testament, we see that this is basically God's wrath or God's judgment on someone. The origins of it can be found in Numbers chapters 5 verses 11 through 31. And in this we see that if a suspected wife was um, accused of unfaithfulness, she would have to drink this combination of water and dust um, prepared by a priest, and then this would show that if she was innocent, she would be fine. However, if she was guilty, this would cause her bitter suffering. We see this also when God talks about the cup of wrath that he was going to pour down on others. We see this in Jeremiah, we see this in Revelations. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 15 through 18, it says, For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then I will look to the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah and its kings and its princes 
to make them a ruin, a horror, a hissing, and a curse as it is to this day. We also see this in Revelations as the seven bowls that are poured out. We see this um, in, in the first verse in chapter 16 where it says, When I heard the loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. However, the most imperative time that we see this is when the cup of wrath that was meant for us, Jesus took it on. We see this in this plea, in this amazing prayer we see in Luke chapter 22, verses 42 to 44, where we see him saying, Father, if, it is, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from the heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Now this sweating of blood is not figurative. This is a medical phenomenon when a person's body is enduring so much stress and so much trauma, you actually have sweat come out of your pores. This is what Jesus went through. This is the agony that he went through. And it's important for us to realize, so what could cause Jesus this much agony? And that's what we're going to see at the next two points, which is the curse and the crush. We'll first start off with the curse. And we'll see that when we go back to um, the verse that we opened with in Galatians 3.13. What did Paul mean when he said, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree? So what Paul was doing is he was actually quoting the Old Testament. He was quoting Moses. In Deuteronomy chapters 21 through 23, he said, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God so that you do not defile your land which the Lord your God gives you as his inheritance. So this curse, if we define it, is an expression of contempt for someone. To be cursed is to suffer various kinds of misfortune, sometimes to the extent of being cut off from someone's family or community or suffering death itself. Hanging on the tree represented the crucifixion and the shame that came along with it. The curse of God on the Father fell on Jesus. And the Jewish people, and this, when it fell on him, the chosen people, the Jewish people, they could not accept this reality. They had a very difficult time understanding how could the Messiah take on the curse from God himself. And that was one of the main reasons why the Jews were so adamant against him. Someone like Paul, before he became a convert, he understood a lot of things, and he even understood when the Messiah came into play that things would change. But what he could not grasp his mind around is how could the curse be laid down on him, even though in the scriptures it talks about the suffering Messiah, or the suffering servant. But the, the Jews at the time, they were not interested in the suffering servant. They were interested in a warrior Messiah. They were looking for someone to free them from the bondage of the Roman Empire, and they missed the fact that the suffering servant was going to release them from the bondage of sin, which was far greater. When we read about the suffering servant uh, and we look into the Old Testament and we see that there is some of the most shocking truths within this. And that's where we'll come down to this point about the crush. And we'll see this in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah where it details the prophecy of the suffering servant. And just so you can get an idea of the suffering servant, this is so clearly about Jesus that synagogues refuse to read Isaiah 53 out loud. 
they will make excuses not to read it because it's so clearly evident that it's about Jesus. That's what we're talking about. And when you read the chapter, it is a loaded chapter filled with so many things that you can see, wow, this is clearly about Jesus. But sometimes when we read this chapter, we miss certain things. So let us focus on verses 10 and 11. And it says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. He would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By the knowledge of the righteous one, my servant will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. If we go back and read that, we have to understand that it says that it pleased him to crush him. So when you look at something like this in Scripture, especially with the training that we'll have, we'll have to go back to the original Greek and see what does that exactly mean. Well, the Greek word for pleased means delight or desire. So it means what it says it means, and to say it more clearly, it means that God the Father was pleased to crush Jesus. How can that be? And this is, this is something that people struggle with when they're reading it at first glance. But yes, Jesus was crushed by the Father, and it pleased him, but there was a reason because it was restitution for the guilt that could not be removed, and, and it had to be through him in order for us to have a relationship. It was the greatest act of love, and that's why it pleased the Father to crush him. And this is why it's important for us to understand that this is the price that was paid by our Messiah. This is, the lo- this is true love. This... this God wants the reader to know that this rather strange thing that occurred, this tragic message about the servant, did not occur by a regrettable accident or without some predetermined forethought. In fact, to the surprise of some, God's purpose desires to be fulfilled through all the events that were related to the cross. The punishment for sin was for his love for others, and this was his ultimate plan for a worldwide kingdom. And this was required because the guilt was mandatory to be removed to be for the holy people. And that's why it pleased the Father. And Jesus was the only one who could endure this, that he had to experience, and he was the only one qualified to go through this. Physically, his body endured as much as a body could endure. He he experienced the most excruciating and sadistic execution known to human civilization. When we read about the crucifixion, a lot of times we are completely desensitized. We've seen it so much in artworks. We've seen it uh, rendered in so many beautiful ways. And we sometimes don't realize what's the extent of the crucifixion. The crucifixion was a grisly ordeal. And we have to understand in God's perfect plan, the sovereign God, he chose to come at a time when that was the form of execution. That's why his timing is relevant. He was not going to take an easy way out. He had to have a physical death that came the closest to representing of the spiritual trauma that he would have to endure. In crucifixion, you actually die by suffocation from eternal bleeding. And before you even get to crucifixion, there is the scourging. And the scourging is so intense, a lot of people didn't even survive it. And while he is here, completely having a back freshly scourged, and he is on there on the rough wooden cross, he had to press his body up and down simply to breathe. Because you could not breathe on your own in that position. That's why you're in the cross position. And while he's pulling, he's pulling on nail-pierced hands and pushing with nail-pierced feet. This is what Christ endured for us physically. 
And on top of this, in our renderings that we commemorate this great event, we, with honor, cover him up. But the reality is, when he was crucified, he was crucified completely naked to make him feel shame. This is the shame that he went through. This is the pain that he went through. And that wasn't even the worst part of it. The worst part was what he had to go through spiritually. The one who knew no sin experienced sin on behalf of us. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would he say that? Because he endured something that he has never endured before. Paul makes this clear in his writing to the church of Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become righteous of God in him. The one who lived a sinless life died a sinner's death, estranged from God and the object of his wrath. So when we really think about it and really think of what Christ endured for us, we see that he endured so much. The real transfer of sin and curse to Christ was essential. We needed this. We needed him to be polluted. We needed him to have a real death, to put a real distance between us as the saved Christians and the power of sin. It required this much. He paid so much. So even though Jesus was sinless, God deals with him as though he was a sinner, letting him die in a cursed death. In the Jewish rituals, when they had to sacrifice a lamb, they had to choose a lamb that was pure. The reason for that, if they didn't choose one that was pure, when it died, it may have died for its own death. So the only one who could pay the sins for us had to be someone who was sinless. And that's why only Jesus was qualified to do what he did. And this is why when some other people say, oh, well, there was other people who are sinless, it's not possible because he was the only one who could do it. Peter goes on to say in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. Amen to that. The purpose of Christ's death was not merely to provide forgiveness, but to empower his believers to live for righteousness. It was not just about forgiveness. Okay? He, with his death, gave us the power to no longer be slaves to sin. He was, as we sang before, our chain breaker. Before you come into knowledge of Christ, you are a cha you're chained to sin. You cannot help yourself but to sin. You do not have the power to overcome sin because it is too powerful. But he has proven because he was faithful, because he was sinless, because he paid the price, that he broke those chains. And although we may stumble, we no longer have to live in sin because the Holy Spirit empowers us and keeps us away from that life of sin. So Jesus actually took on the full wrath and condemnation of God the Father. The spiritual anxiety of this led him to the sweating of blood. Again, it was that medical phenomenon, and that's why he did it. And when we ask for why he did all this, we know that it's because this is what real love looks like. The world will tell you certain things about what love is. Other religions will tell you what love is. But nobody can see this. Who could imagine that coming down from heaven and voluntarily choosing to go through spiritual and physical anxiety like this and that kind of death and to be punished from someone who loves him? If we look at the example of Abraham and how much he didn't want to sacrifice Isaac and the anxiety that he went through, but at the end of the day, God stopped that. But with Jesus, it had to be done. And that's the kind of love that we're talking about. When we really think about it, although it's a hard subject to, 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 to think about, this is what love is. We were all cursed, and we would not 
keep the law. And this is why we need to understand that we, we do stand guilty. The reason we stand guilty is in Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of his law by doing them. We are to f- do all the law. That's what we were supposed to do. And not one of us could do it. The law was put in place, and the law is not bad. Paul made it very clear, the law is not bad. However, the law was put into place to show that we could not do it. We cannot do it. We need a savior. Okay, and we have to understand that so many people are preaching certain things about who Jesus is, and he's a, he's a good prophet, he's a good person, we should follow his morality. You know, the reason that it's essential to know what Jesus did is because we are all as we start off our life, we are guilty and we deserve death. So many people say, well, is that fair for God? No, if he gives us fairness, we all go to hell. That's fair. That's what fairness is. But what he did is he showed us mercy. He showed us amazing grace. Total obedience, therefore, is demanded by the law and required by God. But only Jesus Christ accomplished this. Uh, Paul quotes this verse um, when he's trying to show the stringency of the law and basically the impossibility to receive salvation through works. Measured by God's standards, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as it says in Romans 3.23. And all are subject to the curse, but the only way we can escape it is the one who conquered death. So we must go to him and we must seek him. Because of Christ's volunteer sacrifice, the debt for all those who believe in him is paid, and it is not just paid, it is paid in full. And that's important for us to understand. He has paid it for all. When he said on the cross, it is finished, that translates to it is paid in full. The debt is done. What we have to do is accept what he did in that cross. Romans 8, chapter, verses, chapter 8, verses 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of the sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. His mission, when he was put on earth, was to put an end to sin, to condemn that evil power that has since the dawn of man has kept us in bondage. And that's what it means that he wants to set us free. God's condemnation against sin is fully poured out onto the sinless flesh of Christ. We must understand that the great price that which we were bought for was so that these chains no longer hold us back. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 22 to 23, For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Now when we read this, this is also another powerful verse and we need to dissect it to understand it you see our personal identity is not in who you are but in whose you are okay christ friedman former slave of the world takes on the name of the new master directed by him and it owes him allegiance he bought us with a price we are now his a slave's true stance is bound up in his or her placement in a different home entirely, the household of Christ. So we see the term, terminology of, of a slave and we, we, we look and we frown on it, but being a slave to Christ is nothing to be ashamed of. Paul opens his letters that he is a, a slave of Christ. And we know that when we have and we are his, that it is something powerful. It is, it is an act of love. The slave is freed person to Christ and shares in the benefit, status, and obligations to the relationship that it brings. 
The notion is not so much that Christ purchased the believers out of slavery, since the price brings believers into Christ's own possession for his or her Lord, who then takes over the responsibility and the care for the purchased one. He takes care of us. Okay? Because we are his now, he takes care of us. We belong to him, and we see this in the Old Testament. This is not a brand new concept. When we look at the Israelites, and he freed them from Egypt, he didn't just free them and say, go off and do whatever you want. No, he freed them, but now that they were bound with him, he gave them new commands, he gave them uh, uh, new rules to follow, and he did this because he was going to take care of them. He said, do these things and I will take care of you. The problem was they, they didn't keep up with that. But now we have someone who can take care of us. So in our closing thoughts, we see that Christ endured for our sake, and I can boldly proclaim then that there is no other way to heaven. Because if there was, we would have known it. Christ cried out that he could just take this cross away. If there was another way, why would the Father lay the curse on Christ if there was another way? But there wasn't one. This is exactly what was required by the law because when God puts a law out there, sin must be paid. He is too holy to let something like sin go unpunished. But he is so loving that he had that payment done through his son and as as a loving act it is offered to all of us. But we have to accept that. As Jesus himself prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Again, we see the obedience of Christ. He, he did not want to do this because of all the physical and, and I believe especially the spiritualness that he would have to go through and the, and, and the punishment and the curse from God the Father. Yet he chose to do this for us. And that's why the cup did not pass because there was no other way, because there's only one way and that is Jesus Christ. Which Jesus says in John Chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but me. So either we believe Scripture or we don't. This, he says it in the most clearest way possible. This verse antagonizes everyone else when they're thinking about how society should be. Everyone is talking about inclusiveness, and there's so many different roads and all this stuff. But here Jesus proclaims something so powerful here. He is the way. And we see that, again, as we see things consistently throughout the New Testament, that this has been shown in the Old Testament. That's why it's apparent for us to realize that it's important to study both the Old and the New. The psalmist in the Old Testament prays that the Lord will teach him the divine way, lead him to walk in truth, and he contemplates the path of life as as a blessed hope. So any hint of universalism synchristic patterns of salvation, reaching the Father through any other means other than Jesus has been completely eliminated. This reminds us of the mediation of Thomas A. Kempis, which is often quoted regarding this. And it goes as this. Follow thou me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow the truth which thou must believe, the life which thou must hope. I am the unavoidable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, the life, truth, life blessed, life uncreated. Who else can make that claim other than Jesus? So the question now, when we see the price that was paid by our Savior, we have to ask ourselves, then what do we do now? How do we come to him? And I always like to refer to Romans 10, chapters 9 
verses 9 through 10, which reads, And if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So this is not just a head knowledge. We know that that is not enough. The demons themselves were in heaven. They were fallen angels. They've seen it with their own eyes. We know that they were there at the crucifixion. They saw what he did. And even when they were being cast out, they acknowledged his title. Acknowledging his title is not belief. That is not what will lead to salvation. What it's about is trust. You have to trust in him. Lucifer, he said, I'm gonna, I know all this is true, but I'm following doing, doing things my way. We must do and say, we're no longer going to do things our way. We're going to do things your way. Those who come to Christ by faith are acknowledging that they have placed themselves entirely and without reserve under his authority to carry out without hesitation whatever he may choose for them to do. We have to realize that whatever he tells us to do, in whichever way he leads us, we need to follow. When, when God came to Paul and he appeared to him, we realized that Paul was willing, to, he had to endure much. He even said, you will endure much for my name. We have to be willing to endure whatever we need to do. We need to sacrifice to him everything. Those who come to Christ by faith are acknowledging that they placed, oh, sorry. Uh, there is no such thing as salvation apart from lordship. We have to understand that when we, when we go back and we look at Romans, we must believe not just in our head but in our heart. He cannot just be acknowledged as the title Lord, but he has to be the Lord of our life. We have to take all our decision-making that we do and view him and see, Lord, is this what you approve of? That is trusting your whole life to him. He needs to be the Lord of your life in every single way. So if you lost everything, our businesses, our job, our friends, our family, our children, our spouse, our health, our freedom, you name it. Would you curse God like Job's wife? Or would you hold on to him like Job? Would you praise him in a jail cell? Or when you're beaten half to death like Paul? Would you confess his name when it becomes illegal like the apostles Peter and John? All he wants is everything you got. But what he has is amazing grace, which is better than all the riches of this world. So if your burden is heavy, know that it is because you were never made to carry that weight. We were never meant to hold all this. We cannot. But his yoke is easy. He will carry your burdens. So won't you come, come down and surrender everything to him. Dedicate your life to him today, the one who endured so much for us. So please, with this message and, and, and diving deeper into scripture, see what Christ has done for us. See the great sacrifice he has done. And if he is not Lord of your life, if he does not rule your life, if you are still bound by chains of sin, that you cannot overcome these sins, have him be the chain breaker and destroy those chains. Because when you have a relationship with him, you then have the power to conquer those sins and to do amazing things that we cannot do on our own. So I implore you all to, to keep that at heart and keep us in your prayers. Pastor, you